The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by one of our great writers, somebody who over the last decade or so has made an enormous impact with novels like The Spinning Heart, The Thing About December, uh, From a Low and Quiet Sea. And he's now written an acclaimed new novel, The Queen of Dirt Island. Donna Ryan, thank you very much for taking the time to join us here on The Last Word of Today FM. Before I get to all the Culture Club choices... Tell us about this latest novel in which you've written about some extremely strong mm-hmm. and interesting women. Yeah, well, it was no great effort, to be honest, because um, I know so many <laughs> women like that. But it is, it's a book. Um, I, I suppose the main characters are, are three um, women of the same family and eventually four um, living in the same house, um, the Aylward women. And um, I was trying to remember today exactly exactly where it came from, you know, on the, on the very first day of writing the first draft. But I, I can't quite remember. I, but I do remember a kind of a whispered voice <laughs> coming to me um, and a vision coming to me of this house with these women in it. And to be honest, it was a very easy book to write. I mean, a book that I really enjoyed writing and a book that I really, I feel really affectionate for. You know, you don't always, that doesn't always happen. You know, I really feel fondness for it. What do you mean by that? Well, kind of gratitude um, because I was in a bit of a bind when I started to write it um, because I was up against a deadline and I hadn't very long and now in fairness my publishers were, were being very understanding about it but I'd written a novel that didn't quite work and I spent a lot of time on it a novel that needed a lot of uh, fixing and I just couldn't face the task you know and I thought to myself you know is there any possibility that I could somehow dredge a different novel out of myself <laughs> you know and you know I didn't have to dredge at all this this book occurred to me um, A Labour of Love it was really like, yeah, I mean, you know, I just every day it was about a 12 week period to writing the first draft and every day the writing just clicked. You know, it just went really well. Um, and and Marie was ready to to receive three or four pages at the end of each day. This is and, your wife. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, only for her, I would have been sunk so many times over. But um, and every day she was going, God, this is just I love it. It's great. You know, and, and I loved it. It was and it, that kind of positivity that's overwhelming positivity doesn't often attend the writing of a novel. You know the way sometimes they tell novelists or aspiring novelists to write what you know about. Is this writing a little bit formed in characters that you knew about but also applying imagination to circumstances entirely different to what they had experienced? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, the the location and the language um, are, are so familiar. I mean, they're just the most malleable and usable forms of raw material for me but I mean the experiences I had to wonder every day like what might it be like to be this person in this situation you know what how might the conversation sound how might your inner discourse um, feel if this is how life is going for you um, and that's I mean that's the joy and the challenge of being a, a writer of fiction you know, you but, have but to can a man do that about women's lives hmm? can a man do that about women's lives sure why not I mean I, I, some people would say no that they don't understand haven't experienced it so if you haven't why write about it well, I stuck to my own very narrow experience of life. I have nothing to write about. I mean, <laughs> I have to do it. And I think nearly all um, fiction writers have to do it. You know, you have to imagine what it might be like to be somebody else entirely, somebody from a different time, you know, somebody of a different gender, a different outlook in life, somebody with a totally different philosophy, somebody who might, you know, act in a way you would never act, that you'd never dream of acting. You know, you have to, I mean, because, I mean, if you look back over 10 years and the stories I've written and the novels I've written, I mean, there are murderers and there are, you know, there are um, unfaithful husbands and there are all sorts of people doing all sorts of things that hopefully I'd never do. <laughs> and you have so, and you have to imagine what 
might it be like to be that person? How might it feel to do that thing? You know, how might it feel to have that thing done to you? And that's, you know, that's kind of the challenge we set ourselves and it's the task we set ourselves as writers. Well, look, before we get to all your culture club choices, just explain for you the title of The Queen of Dirt Island, your new novel. Um, well, The Dirt Island refers to um, a farm, um, you know, and, and part of the farm being disputed land. Um, and a part of a farm was given a nickname by two of the characters when they were kids, um, an island on the farm in a kind of small man-made lake that they called Dirt Island. And the uh, one of the main characters, Eileen Elbert, just carried that nickname for herself from her childhood. And it also refers to, you know, a novel that's written in the book and it's kind of, there's a bit of a meta thing going on, but nothing that I worked out too uh, forensically. It just kind of happened. <laughs> All right, listen, let's get to your choices, Donald. We ask every Culture Club guest to start with the first single or album or piece of music that they can remember buying or would admit to. I'm not sure I'm familiar with your choice. Really? Camouflage? Yeah. Maybe because I loved the song so much, um, I, I, I just presume everybody's heard of it. But Stan Ridgway was kept off the number one spot by Christa Berg's Lady in Red for week after week after week. He was just number two and I was just, every week I was heartbroken again for Stan, you know, and he was on top of the pops over and over again in his camouflage gear and his helmet and his guitar singing camouflage. <laughs> I just thought it was the best song of all time. Genuinely, I think I, I was probably nine or ten, I suppose, um, maybe ten, yeah. And the story in the song about the, the young Marine on patrol and getting separated from his unit um, and being rescued by a ghost, the ghost of camouflage, this, this legendary Marine. It's just a fantastic. It's a heartbreaking and fantastic story. And, you know, it's, I think the story is what drew me to it. But also it, it seemed really, it seemed manly. It seemed tough and cool. You know, I was a PFC on a search patrol. Yeah, I mean, sure. And, you know, being young and naive and stupid and knowing nothing of the world. I mean, this is this is what it seemed to me um, was manly at the time, you know. I see if I remember it now and we play a little bit of this Stan Ridgeway camouflage. I was a PFC on a search patrol on Charlie Down. It was in the jungle wars of 65. My weapon jammed and I got stuck way out and all alone. And I could hear the enemy moving in close outside Just then I heard a twig snap and I grabbed my empty gun And I dug it scared while I counted down my fate And then a big marine, a giant with a pair of friendly eyes Appeared there at my shoulder and said, wait When he came in close beside me, said, don't worry, son, I'm here Charlie wants to tangle now, he'll have to die. I said, well, thanks a lot. I told him my name and asked him his. And he said, the boys just call me Camouflage. I have absolutely no recollection Seriously, of that. Seriously, man. <laughs> That's but you obviously the story was what yeah. appealed to you. Favourite album. And uh, you've nominated The Pogues, The Rum Sodomy and The Lash. Actually, Siobhan McGowan, Shane's sister, was here a couple of months ago. Oh, really? Yeah, Siobhan's great, yeah. Yeah, so she had great choices, her music choices as well. Tell us why The Pogues appealed to you so much. I just, they just, first of all, um, I think it's because we 
claim Shane McGowan as a Nina man um, because he spent his childhood summers in Pocahontas and Clock Jordan and places near Nina um, and he was often seen in Nina. Um, his parents had a house in Silver Mines. He had a house in Carney, a small village near the town and um, we just saw him as one of our own. But just the energy and the fact that every Pogue song seems at once not perfect and wild, you know, and slightly at the edge of losing, of, of being out of control, but still very controlled. I mean, it's just the beauty of it, I think. And the main thing for me, I think, is the fact that Shane McGowan is one of the world's great lyricists. Yeah, it's just Let's perfection. hear a little bit of Rainy Night in Soho. I've been loving you a long time Down all the years, down all the days And I've cried for all your troubles Smile at your funny little ways We watched our friends grow up together And we saw them as they fell Some of them fell into heaven Some of them fell into hell I took shelter from a shower To your arms On a rainy night in Soho A bit of a poem, sir, from Rum Sodomy on the last rainy night in Soho. Is that just perfection? Every line is perfect. You know, there's, there's no rhyme in a Shane McGowan song that feels forced. You know, it just always feels so right. Your favourite bands and the Pokes are in there, but you're... Much heavier choice, heavy rock choice for your favourite bands. Tell us about them. Well, I, I couldn't ever leave behind um, <laughs> the bands that I loved. When You know how much music means when you're 12, 13, 14, 15 and you're trying to find your way in the world and you're kind of learning about yourself and, you know, about how, how life works. And these things just, they have such import, I think. Um, and I think we used them as emotional cushions almost, you know, and one of my emotional cushions was ACDC because they just, you know, I just loved it. I loved the sound of it, kind of the pulse of the, the drum beat and, you know, the fact, again, that <laughs> they all just seemed so perfectly formed and there was no real effort involved with ACDC. It was just this thing you could just put on and you knew every song was going to be a dinger, you know, it was never going to be a dud. <laughs> um, and they're still the same. I saw them live a few years ago. We went to... um see them in the O2 in London and Anne-Marie was pregnant with our daughter and uh, fair play to her for coming we were at the back now in fairness there was no <laughs> we were at the middle of the mosh pit or anything uh, it was just incredible to see Angus Young and Malcolm and um, Brian Johnson on stage and Phil Rudd was back on drums it was fantastic You've also picked though and we have a clip from Led Zeppelin to Whole Lot of Love so let's hear it and then talk to me about Zeppelin <laughs> Thank you. 
delighted to get a chance to play that. What does Zeppelin mean to you? Oh, it's fabulous. I remember actually, um, I was about 16 and a huge row broke out between two of my friends um, about the relative merits of Iron Maiden and Led Zeppelin. And it got no really contest. heated. Yeah, no contest. Yeah, and um, when Led said, uh, Led Zeppelin stole all those songs. They're all robbed. And we were going to go away out of that. And then it turned out that they had stolen um, from Howlin' Wolf and from Memphis Mini. Like, literally, Memphis Mini, they took Wendell Levy breaks, slightly reconfigured it, used the exact same words, and paid no royalties until there was, I think, a court case and they had to pay something to Memphis Mini's estate. And it happened that um, there was a Memphis Mini Best of album in my house, and I discovered this was true, actually. And the same about um, Howlin' Wolf's Killing Floor. Um, Zeppelin just swiped it. It's incredible. Uh, you know, pretty blatant. But still, you can't take away from the fact that... The way they perform oh the tracks. Oh, God, unbelievable. One of my big regrets in life, actually, I was working in a warehouse in Limerick, a very small warehouse beside a house. And two friends of mine, Inda Nolan and Johnny Lynch, called for me. They said, man, come on, pack it in, we have to go. We're driving to Dublin. We've got tickets for Page and Plant. Jimmy Page and Robert Plant were playing together tonight in Dublin. We have tickets. Come on. I didn't go. I couldn't, I couldn't leave my post. It was, I was one of the first. best con- concerts I've ever been at. Really, it yeah. Was there magnificent. you magnificent. Don't want to hear about it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, but what's the best gig you have been at? Oh, actually, can I just say one yeah. thing about that? Actually, years later, I was doing um, an event at Electric Picnic in Literary Tent. And um, the guy who's doing it for Ray put me up in a, that lovely hotel near the picnic and um, there was a bus outside saying performers. So I said, I sure am a performer. I'll get on here and there was Robert Plant. <laughs> he goes, I don't think this bus is for you, mate. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> okay, best gig you're ever at? It was in Salt Hill in, I think, 2003. Um, uh, it was Bob Dylan was headlining and he was being supported by, among others, um, Gary Moore and Damien Dempsey. Uh, Gary Moore was just incredible. But what Damien, a guitarist he was. Oh my God, unbelievable. He just, when he just, he stood up at the stage and he put his foot up on a monitor and he played Parisian walkways. It was just, oh man, it was just unbelievable. But Damien Dempsey completely stole the show. And I love Bob Dylan, um, but he changes his melodies apparently so he can't sing along. So no one had a clue what song he was singing. <laughs> and he was, he was wearing a hoodie with a Stetson over the hoodie and he was just, it wasn't, it wasn't entertaining at all. It was terribly disappointing. But thank God, I mean, it didn't matter because Damien had been so good. It was just, it was such a great day. We have a little bit of Bob Dylan live to play, which clearly probably isn't anywhere relevant to what he did that time in Salt Hill. This is back from 1979, One More Cup of Coffee. If he 
taught you how to pick and choose and how I throw the blame. The overseas is kingdom where no stranger does intrude. His voice it trembles as he calls out for another plate of food. One more cup of coffee for the road. Bob Dylan, you're not the first That's writer. live, is it? Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, he didn't do that in Galway. He didn't do that in Galway. You might have liked him to. You're not the first writer, though, that's picked Dylan out as a big influence. Yeah. Um, you know that album, um, Blood, on the Tra- Blood on the Tracks? Yeah. I mean, every song is just incredible. But again, like the lyrics are just so brilliant. You know, And the story in each song is so brilliant. I need to take a break. Donald Ryan, stay with us. We have to take the traffic and we'll be back with the second part of the Culture Club after this. Welcome back here to the Culture Club and the last word of today FM. Donald Ryan has written another terrific novel. This one is called The Queen of Dirt Island. But we're asking him now about his choices in movies and television. And we will get to books. So a favourite movie. You have gone for a Martin Scorsese classic from 1990, Goodfellas. Why? Just because I enjoy it every single time I see it. I enjoy it over and over again. It never gets old. It's just always brilliant. And it just feels, again, it just feels so perfectly formed. Um, I think, um, you know, the narration is just so brilliant. And I think it's taken pretty much verbatim from the actual memoir it was based on. Um, Henry... Henry Hill. Henry Hill's memoir, yeah. Um, I think the actual um, Reliata's narration is, is pretty much word for word from that. And... I mean, just for the scene alone, the walking into the nightclub scene, I mean, that that that, that legendary scene, that extended walk down along is just, is just so perfect. I think my favourite scene, though, is where um, Henry Hill walks up to the guy across the road from his girlfriend's house and just takes his gun out and smacks him across the head with it. And I, I know it's it's horrible, it's gratuitous violence and nothing I should admire, but it's just the scene itself has just has such power and energy about it. And it says so much about the characters and about how to see the world. When, you know, when he hands his girlfriend then the, um, the gun and he goes, hide this. And, then, and from that moment on, she's enmeshed and she's hooked. She's addicted to that world, that excitement. It's just such a beautiful piece of characterization in that scene. And, then, you know, I mean, I suppose Scorsese, you know, it's, it's, it's a work of art, but you never feel as though you're having a work of art pushed on you. You never, you never feel as though... He's trying to make any kind of statement. It's just it's it's just pure storytelling. It seems from start to finish. I don't know which particular part of the movie we have, but this is the late Roy Laita, who of course died earlier this year as Henry Hill in Goodfellas. Still, I never saw Jimmy so happy. He was like a kid. We had money coming in through my Pittsburgh people, and even after a while, the Lufthansa thing began to calm down. But the thing that made Jimmy so happy that morning was that this was the day that Tommy was being made. Jimmy was so excited, you'd think he was being made. He must have made four calls to Tommy's house. They had a signal all set up so he'd know that the minute that the ceremony was over. Hi. Ma, where are you? Oh, here I am. Home? Home, I'm leaving. I've been here all the way. Let me look at you, let me look like What do you think? I look good. Like wonderful. Listen, yeah. just be careful. Congratulations, I wish you lots of I love you. Don't paint any more religious pictures, please. God be with you, Bye, Ma. You know, we always called each other good fellas. Like you'd say to somebody, you're going to like this guy, he's all right. He's a good fella, he's one of us. You understand? We were good fellas, wise guys. But Jimmy and I could never be made because we had Irish blood. It didn't even matter that my mother was Sicilian. 
To become a member of a crew, you've got to be 100% Italian so they can trace all your relatives back to the old country. See, it's the highest honor they can give you. It means you belong to a family and a crew. I even love the music. Music's it. fabulous. It really is, yeah. Must go and watch that again. Give us a play. That's a particular favourite of yours. What's on the list there, Matt? <laughs> translations by Brian oh, yeah. Freer. Well, translations. Um, actually, I saw this not too long ago. I think it was the uh, was it the Quarry Players in Limerick. Um, but it was just, um, it's just such a fantastic play. And it's, you know, it's, it's so sad, but it's one of those plays that you become completely immersed in. Um, and I suppose it's a play about understanding and misunderstanding and language and, and gaps between people. And There's some people recently criticised it as becoming a bit dated. No, I think it lasts forever. You know, I, I can't see it ever being put on and people saying, oh, that's... I think in the past now because I mean it's isn't it becoming more and more relevant I mean how how we communicate and and the differences between us and how these things can either be very quickly and easily closed and made okay or can lead to all sorts of uh, disasters and I also believe you want to give a shout out to the Nina Coral Society oh yeah I mean I remember seeing um I know I'm biased now, but um, she was amazing. It my cousin Jade Ryan played um, the lead in Hairspray a few years ago with Nina Coral Society, and it was just amazing. I brought my daughter Lucy to see it, and for the whole thing, she was just dumbstruck. I mean, but it was just so well done, and was so well acted, and the singing and the music and the set were all so amazing. And you know, it's amazing to think that in a small town like Nina, you know, that that something like that can, that people will invest so much of themselves into putting on a show like that. You know, it's just I think it's incredible. Let's go to books. I believe you're a big fan of science fiction and Ian M. Banks. I think actually it's um, one of the writers who kind of was really influential um, when I was young. And again, I've apologised several times to a friend of mine, Gary Savage, um, who I haven't seen for a long time, but who I borrowed books by Ian M. Banks from and never give back. <laughs> I still have them at home and someday I get around to it. But I, you know, I, I, it's something I've tried is science fiction. It's something I failed miserably at. Um, I just could never make it. I could never get into that groove where it started to, it started to bite. You know, where it started to kind of sink into the page. It, it, for me, it's my science fiction or my attempts at it always felt too forced and too unreal. Because you know, you have to try and latch onto something that's almost universal in order to make science fiction. Um, readable and accessible I think you know while if, even even as you're creating worlds and creating different um, concepts you have to try and there's something you have to kind of plug into I think that I just failed at over and over again but I mean we all have a groove that you know and eventually you find it I have a list here though of favourite authors John Steinbeck Stephen King Doris Lessing Margaret Atwood David Mitchell so what do you look for when you're reading? I don't know if I ever actually say to myself okay I'm, I, I need this is my particular need now as a reader, but because um, there's so many books, I think there's something like 40 million books in print. You know, it's, it's an incredible number. And so, um, you know, you can have an infinity of reading lives and never get to the end of it. Um, but I remember John Bynes saying once, everything he reads um, has to be a page turner in some way. You have to want to turn the next page because the writing is so good or because you care so deeply about a certain character or because you just want to see what happens next. You know, but you have to want to turn the, turn the next page. And it's so important. So it's, you know, it's why we have to kind of audit ourselves as writers to make sure we're not being self-indulgent. You know, you have to make sure that what you're 
writing is readable, that people will want to read it because you want to be read as a writer. You want to have an audience, you know, and so and so you have to think of your audience when you write. And and I think when a, when it's obvious that a writer has done that, you know, it, it, it makes the book much more appealing. Let's go on to television. We ask everyone to nominate what you watched as a child that you remember fondly. What's it for you? Oh, the A-Team. It's one of the big ones anyway, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more to be said about Actually, the A-team, It's just brilliant. It? I mean, there was nothing like it. As an adult, you've a really interesting some suggestions. Uh, we're going to pick one, actually, you know, and I'm surprised you're one of the first people who's actually nominated Love Hate. Really? Which surprises me because some, so much of it was so, so good. Oh, my God, Love Hate is incredible. I mean, I, once, actually, I had a conversation with a fellow writer and his friend, and I said, you know what, Love Hate, for me, often, actually, outshone Sopranos was better. And they... Oh, they ridiculed me from a height. And you had the Sopranos on your list as one of your favourites as well. Yeah, but I mean, I think at times there there were episodes of Love, Hate that were just so good. I mean, you know, unforgettable TV. Lots lots of times you'll watch a TV series and you'll think, oh, this is great and you can't wait to see the next episode. And then, you know, a few weeks afterwards, you can't remember one episode. It's just gone. And you know you enjoyed it. You know it was good. But I mean, I I think I remember almost every individual episode of of Love, Hate. Uh, Stuart Carlin's genius. He just got it so right, you know, and I think everybody, there was a kind of a a background noise of guilt for everybody watching it because these horrific things actually happened and these things happened to real people not so far away from any of us, um, almost contemporaneously. And But still, it was just so compelling because it was just such perfect, perfect storytelling. We're going to play a clip I think it's probably from the first series because it's Aidan Gillen as John Boy in this accusing Stumpy played by Peter Campion of being a rat and we have our usual language warning. So Stumpy, you're a rat or what? Oh, rat. Maybe you think you're a clever rat. You were told to be there and you left the place. No way I'm a rat. You better not be. I'm not. Don't give me the look. You know what they do to rats down in Mexico? This one rat, last week, they cut off his head. Then they cut the face off the head. Then they sewed the face, all of it, the skin, everything. They sewed it onto a football and they left it out in the front garden <laughs> for his kids to play with. Do you know anything about that? What are you going to do to make it up to me? Whatever you want. Well, this is going to hurt my pocket, Stumpy, so it's going to hurt yours too. Sure. There's going to be a penalty on you being stupid and being lazy and fucking off when you were supposed to stay put where you were. You've got money somewhere, hole in the ground, backyard. Yeah. Dig it up, bring it here, and don't run. Because if you run like a rat, who's going to look after your ma? Love, hate. Ah, mm. oh, it's incredible. Like the writing was just so perfect. Um, there was an episode, the episode where John Boy got killed, actually. I remember jumping around the sitting room, going, yes, and you know, I mean, it was a terrible reaction to have, but still, it was just, I think it's just, you got so sucked in into that world. Just briefly on television, I, I actually enjoying as well two of the series you've picked out as well, which maybe 
humour that might be offensive to some people, but the young offenders and the in-betweeners are great choices. Oh man, they're so funny. They're just, I mean, I laugh a second, really, you know I mean? And, and so so bang on as well, you know, they ring so true, those characters. You know? Every line is just brilliant. And also, there was one episode of um, uh, the in-betwe- or, um, Young Offenders, offenders where um, the mother um, ran into the house to, to rescue Jock from his father. I can't remember the mother, the character's name now, but it was just, it was just fantastic. You know, it was just a moment where suddenly the comedy broke down and it was serious for 25 seconds. Yeah. Um, it was just, it was incredible. Or the episode where the lads are working in the fishmongers um, as a punishment and they realise what a fantastic person um, the mother is, you know, and, and it was just, uh, it, was just it was lovely, something lovely about it, you know, as, as rough and tough and um, profane as the lads were, you know, they were just so lovely. Let's finish with what we call a cultural buried treasure. Anything that you think might have been overlooked. So you have a number of things you gave us. Kathleen Turner, Like a Lion. Mm. What's that? She's a, she's a singer-songwriter. Um, she's based in Limerick. Um, and she's just, I mean, she is, she's recognised. People know how brilliant she is and how fantastic she is. But she's just so such an incredible singer and songwriter and musician and such an incredible musical person. And she does so much for people. Um, that she deserves you know, huge recognition. Um, she's just a great person and she's a fantastic musician, actually. And if I really was to have a really deep think about the best gigs I've ever had, Kathleen's would be up there because when she's singing live, it's, there's nothing like it. We'll play out on that. It has been fantastic having you on the Culture Club. Donald Ryan, congratulations on your latest novel, The Queen of Dirt Ireland. Thanks, it man. has been great having you with us. So we play out with Kathleen Turner like a lion. Everyone's looking when we smile and bear our chest Not so inviting when we smile and bear our teeth Careful informers of the lines we're not to cross What will arrival when we pass the stop sign We're meant to make sure that we're never a little too much We tell each other that we've always been enough And that's the way it's always been You haven't seen me Going like a lion Our teeth and our claws, yes We'll tear it apart with the might of our jaws, yes The muscle of the pride daughters at our side Look what happens when we go Last word with Matt Cooper. Today FM, it all happens here.